Alright. After me talking last week about the importance of being on time, I'm starting class uh, 11 minutes late, and that's not your fault. That's, that's me. I was uh, not well, on track of time. I was here. Uh, anyway, glad that you're here. Glad you got a little bit of extra time. Glad that you're not in the ditch somewhere on, on your way here this morning. Um, now, do we want to start off with speeches or do we want to start off with the review game? Speeches. Um, we might have some people who are here today who are not going to be able to be here in the coming weeks. And so it might be good for us to start off with speeches so that we uh, allow anybody that was here today that wants to get their speech done, make sure that we get that done. And then whatever time we have left, uh, we can do the game. Looks like we've got a fun setup here. Um, so, who is here today that is ready to do their speech that will not be available to do it next week or the week after? Any volunteers? Raise your hand. Yeah, we got Lucas. All you basketball players who are going to be gone for the next two weeks, raise your hand. Uh-huh. There should be one. One. Me. <laughs> Three, four, five, and Lane. There's six. Okay, so let's do those six. Um, we'll go ahead and start off with those six speeches, and then we'll do the review game. So, does anyone volunteer to go first? Come on, guys. I nominate Viola. Otherwise, we'll just do the, uh, the random roll. What if I put in the little random thing? What's that called? I don't remember. Random number generator. Okay, yeah. I'll make some room on the stage here for you. someone who's incredibly smart but also really idiotic at the same time. Like you never quite know when they're going to say something profound or profoundly stupid. Like that was Sigmund Freud, quintessential embodiment of his personality. Um, from his revolutionary ideas on the unconscious to his years wasted on cocaine and dissecting eels. Whether you believe he was a whack job or a genius, we can all agree that he had a profound effect effect on the world of psychology we know today. I'm going to show you this through an overview of his life, 
explain some of his most uh, important theories and examine his long-term influence. Sigmund Freud was born on the 6th of May in 1856 in a little town called Prebor in Austria. It was a Catholic town and Sigmund being a Jew, he faced a lot of discrimination. This only got worse when he moved to Vienna in 1860. In 1865, at the age of nine, he started school. He later went on to the University of Vienna where he dissected 400 eels, looking for their reproductive system. Um, how eels reproduce is still a mystery to this day. Uh, he graduates with a medical degree in 1881. That same year, he's engaged to his, the love of his life, Martha Bernays. Uh, with no money and no job, he couldn't marry her because he had no way to provide. So he tries to advance his career through finding the benefits of cocaine, studying the benefits of cocaine. Though he missed out on the major discoveries of that time, he did gain an expensive addiction. In 1884, he went to study under a guy named John Martin. John Martin introduced him to hypnosis and the idea of talk therapy, which is, was contrary in the day, um, controversial in the day. Instead of surgery to fix mental issues, he would talk through the problems. In 1860 and 1886, he returns home and opens his own practice in his hometown and marries Martha. By 1890, he became bored and joined Joseph Brewer in what they coined the talking cure. They would talk through patients and analyze their dreams and uh, through free association, they would analyze their consciousness. Their most famous patient was Anna O, a lady with hysteria. In the 1900s, he published his first book, The Interpretation of Dreams, and which is also his most famous work. In 1908, he joined Carl Jung, which would be his most influential partner in many collaborations. Carl Jung introduced him to many of the greatest psychological minds of the time. In 1918, World War I started, and by 1920, his theory of psychoanalysis really takes off. In his later years, he turned to self-analysis after his diagnosis with cancer. He became his own greatest obsession. Sigmund Freud is known as the father of psychoanalysis. Uh, the major idea behind this is the idea of unconscious, which Sigmund brought, into, brought to light. The idea that we're not aware of everything that goes on in our minds which today we know is true. Only about 10% of our mind is conscious, while the other 90% is unconscious. Another one of Sigmund's theories was his theory of personality. This involves three entities, the id, the ego, and the superego. The id, you can imagine like a little demon sitting on your shoulder. It's the instinctual side of you, the impulsive side. It only wants pleasure. The superego is the angel on the other side. It's the moral side of you. This develops around age seven. It desires social acceptability and loves to please people. The ego is the brain in the middle. It keeps the id in check and balances the two forces. The id is entirely unconscious, your subconscious desires. The ego is part of the, your conscious mind, but it's driven by the unconscious social conditioning that you go through as a child. 
The ego is your conscious decisions that you're making from moment to moment. The idea is that the id possesses your darkest desires. The ego wants to be socially acceptable, or the superego wants to be socially acceptable. And the ego's job is to fulfill your darkest desires while also maintaining social acceptability. This was the idea behind psychoanalysis, to identify your darkest desires, except the defense mechanisms that you put in place to defend from those darkest desires and to create healthy new defense mechanisms so that you could still maintain social acceptability. Sigmund Freud had a lot of influence over the course of his life. Um, he's most influential in psychoanalysis, which he is called the father of psychoanalysis. And um, what another one of his ideas was the idea of talk therapy. Um, it's really influential and it remains a practice to this day. The patient lying there spewing their stream of consciousness and a therapist analyzing that. Another one of his uh, revolutionary ideas was the idea of the unconscious and conscious <coughs> mind. Uh, so much in our brain is hidden and he believed that you only had to go digging to find it. This is very helpful in trauma therapy, childhood trauma therapy, because um, your brain stores so much knowledge and so many memories and you have to go digging to access those. Despite his flawed thinking, his cocaine addiction, his flawed ideas of men and women, his reliance on hypnosis, and his years spent dissecting eels, we can all agree that Sigmund had a profound effect on psychology we know today. I showed you this by his life, his theories, and his influence. Sigmund had a profound influence on psychology both for the better and for the worse. But Sigmund, we can all agree that Sigmund was a profound and profoundly stupid man.
If I have seen a little further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Sir Isaac Newton. I believe the West progressed much faster in the East in the areas of math and science because of three things. Capitalism, the closing of Eastern countries' borders, and the time frame at which these happened. Capitalism in the West uh, started around 500 years ago when there were many revolutions, including the English, French, and American Revolution. This led to capitalism and freedom, which increased trade uh, of goods and information. The East, however, has had anything but capitalism uh, in the last 500 years, such as socialism, communism, and a, a emphasis on harmony and uh, living at peace with everyone. The closing of borders <clears throat> uh, was predominantly from the 1600s to the 1800s. Uh, China and Japan both had large chunks of time uh, where they were isolated from the outside world. Uh, it wasn't until World War I or World War II uh, where they uh, came out of uh, their isolation uh, because of war. And interestingly enough, if you look back at their history during their time of isolation, there was very little conflict uh, in the East. Uh, and since war often leads to innovation and new technologies, the lack of war uh, set them even farther behind. Now the time frame at which these happen is very important because uh, China, three or four thousand years ago, uh, actually was leading the world uh, and the Eastern society was leading the world in areas of math and technology uh, and had many inventions such as gunpowder, paper, uh, and then the Middle East, uh, fueled by Islam, uh, led the world. Uh, uh, in philosophy and technology uh, in the 10th and 12th centuries. And the West, finally, from around the 17th century till now, uh, led the world with the Industrial Revolution uh, in Europe and North America. Uh, and incidentally enough, the eastern borders were closed during the majority of our Industrial Revolution, uh, which caused them to fall uh, farther behind. As you can see, the West progressed much farther than the East in areas of math and science because of capitalism, closed borders, and the time frame at which these happened. As conveyed in Newton's quote from earlier, the West stood on the shoulders of the East and developed into the world that we know it today. Thank you.
Nick, uh, what's the uh, kind of speech you're giving? Persuasive speech. And the topic is? Why we need checks and balances. Nothing can stop you from accomplishing what you imagine in your heart, but make sure you have the right restraints in place for checks and balances so that you don't accomplish something that you will regret or hurt others. That was Dr. Lucas DeSalle. Um, without checks and balances, we would be at the mercy of the dictator, President King, or ruler, and what he feels like doing when he wakes up, whether that's good or bad or for our, for the people, people's good, or whether it's just really bad. <laughs> and there would be corruption and disorder without them. So I'm going to go over why Americans wanted checks and balances, why government needs checks and balances, and examples of countries without checks and balances. So why Americans wanted checks and balances. James Madison first came up with, with the idea so that no one branch of government could overtake or dominate the other. And the reasons why Americans wanted checks and balances is mainly due to what they experienced, experienced in England. Um, the colonists left England because of religious persecution and they wanted to have their own government. And they didn't like the high taxes with no representation and they didn't feel like it was for their good. It felt, they felt like it was for military purposes and for the purposes of, of the empire. And the king could really just dismiss anything that parliament put in place. It was technically a constitutional monarchy, but it really isn't when the king could do whatever he wanted. And there is no accountability for the king or for parliament whatsoever. And then why government wanted, why government needs checks and balances. Um, the, cons the consequences could be dictatorships or leaderships by small groups, which leads to corruption and dishonesty. Um, influencing court cases because the judges are afraid of what might happen to them if they don't make the right, deci right decision. And there's no protection of human rights. You, have to, you might have to do something whether it's for your good or it just doesn't help you at all and might even hurt you. And there's reduced mistakes when you have checks and balances because everyone is working together and there's less, there's, it's less likely that you would make the wrong decision. And examples of countries without them. Um, Joseph Stalin is known for the Great Purge where he imprisoned about a million people and executed about 7,000 solely because he was afraid that he would lose his power. And Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. I don't feel like I really need to say anything about them because we already already know, but he killed about 15 to 32 million people and imprisoned much more because of concentration camps. Um, and Mao Zedong, who is known for the Great Leap Forward, when he moved millions of Chinese from the countryside to urban areas, and it resulted in the starvation of about 45 million. Um, and this was all because there was nobody to tell them that that was wrong and to hold them, in, put them in place and hold them and put them in, put them in place. So that was examples without checks and, of countries without checks and balances. 
So that was why Americans wanted checks and balances, why government needs checks and, checks and balances, and examples of countries without checks and balances. Um, and without them, there would be corruption and disorder. And really, as Dr. Lucas Bashala said at the start, nothing really can stop you from accomplishing what you imagine in your heart, which is why we need which is why we need checks and balances so we don't end up like Russia and Germany in the 1940s or China in the 1950s. That's why countries like America and Norway and Denmark have all developed country systems of government similar to checks and balances. Thank you. Animals are the working class, humans are capitalists, and pigs are the communist leaders. Such is the world of Animal Farm, a, both a book and a warning by George Orwell. This, this book can be broken down into three simple categories. Its characters and setting, the vision of the animals, and its reality and conclusion. The first part of any book is its characters and setting. This particular storyline opens up on a homestead in England called the Manor Farm. Its owner, Mr. Jones, has become a drunk and let the farm deteriorate over the years. There are many animals, so I will only introduce to you the ones with names. Boxer, a strong cart horse in mind and body. Clover, a loving, mother-like cart horse, who is also very old. Muriel, the goat, who is a great friend of Clover's. Benjamin, the old and cynical donkey. Um, the, th the three dogs, Jesse, Bluebell, and Pincher. Molly, the old, the foolish and vain mare. And finally, the four pigs. Squealer, an eloquent pig. Napoleon, an opinionated, aggressive pig. Snowball, a smart pig. And finally, Major, the old and wise Thor, who is soon to die. The second point I'm going to talk to you about is the vision of the animals. Major calls a meeting, an after dark meeting in the barn, to discuss his vision. The vision of someday throwing off the yokes 
of humanity and erasing their mark from all the animals. He introduces to them a song called Beasts of England, which is an anthem for animals' independence. Soon after, Major dies, and the, pigs, the other pigs, who are acknowledged as the cleverest of the animals, take up the responsibility of getting ready for this, for this great revolution that he was talking about. The opportunity comes sooner than they expected, however, and they chase Mr. Jones and Mrs. Jones off of the farm and start to put practices into place to make the farm self-sufficient and have all the animals work equally and willingly. They also put principles into place to make, maintain order based upon all of Major's vision. These commandments include whatever goes along two legs is an enemy. Whatever goes on four legs or has wings is a friend. No animal shall, sleep, shall wear clothes. No animal shall sleep in a bed. No animal shall drink alcohol. No animal shall kill any other animal. And all animals are equal. The second and most depressing part of this book is its reality and conclusion. Soon, soon, very soon after the, the revolution happens, the pigs start to take advantage of their, the consensus that they are the best. They are the, they are the smartest in all ways. They start, to, they start to use it as a special pleading to get better and higher treatment than the other animals. Also, Napoleon starts using, uh, using his might to make all others conform to his will. He uses dogs to chase Snowball off the farm and kill many of the other animals. The, the commandments are changed and they are, and Squealer is convincing all the other animals that they were never, they were always the same in the first place. The new commandments include four legs are good, two legs are better. No animal shall sleep in a bed with sheets. No animal shall drink alcohol to excess. No animal shall kill any other animal without reason. Pigs are best. All the other animals are equal. Whether said or unsaid, these were the new commandments. Pigs, and just the whole point of this is the pigs elevated themselves and put their well-being before any of the other animals. And even when the animals were in poverty, they blamed all of the other, all the other farms, all of the other people that didn't do what Napoleon wanted them to do, and soon enough, they were starving. This is a very dark and deep, and also very satirical book. Its warnings and truths ring in our ears for a long time, and it has many applications even today. The George Orwell is the author, Animal Farm is the book, and these are the three simple categories. It's characters and setting, the vision of the animals, and it's reality and conclusion. Now go read it.
to the poor, but I think the best way of doing good to the poor is not making them easy in poverty, but leading or driving them out of it. I observed that the more public provisions were made for the poor, the less they provided for themselves, and of course became poor. And on the contrary, the less was done for them, the more they did for themselves and became richer. Ben Franklin. Redistribution of wealth is wrong for three reasons. It does not reduce poverty in the long term. It encourages people to spend money and buy things they can't afford. And it's basically a government approved way of stealing. Redistribution does not reduce poverty in the long term. A quote that explains this very well is, give a man a fish, it will feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, it will feed him for a lifetime. This is pretty much saying that if people are never made to work and strive, they will end up becoming dependent and they will never be able to feed themselves or make money for themselves. They will, they will never like value what they have. And they will end up in personal and economic poverty. Um, you may be able to reduce it in the short term by um, giving out money, but it will end up hurting the country. You have to let people freely produce and keep the wealth they create. Otherwise, there's no reason for people to work hard and get jobs. It encourages people to spend money and buy things they can't afford. During COVID, when people got the stimulus checks, some people saved it and used it very wisely, but some people bought things that they could not afford in the long term and that seemed well at that time. But after they ran out, they never went back to their jobs and they were really living in a false reality. And because a lot of people got laid off and never went back, um, a lot of businesses had to shut down because there weren't people to work in the businesses. And the people that were still working were inevitably supporting the people who were not working through their taxes. An example of people in poverty spending money on things they didn't need is in a 2012 Yale survey, those in the lowest 20% um, of income had the highest rate of lottery gambling. And so this is an example of impoverished people spending money on things they really didn't need. Lastly, it's basically a government approved way of stealing. Now, you may not really think it's stealing, but it is. It's taking from the rich and giving to the poor. It's also called a Robin Hood plan, which that is where schools that were very rich, they had to give money to the poor schools who needed it. And it is okay and a good thing to volunteer and to be charitable to the poor. I'm not saying that it's bad, but the Eighth Commandment clearly states, thou shalt not steal. And the people who are working hard and making a living, taking it away and giving it to the people who 
are physically and mentally stable and can work, giving it to them is just wrong, and the Bible clearly says that. And the Bible also says, if a man shall not work, neither shall, neither shall he eat. And so those that are able to work should work. Um, that is just their duty. That is what the Bible says. Um, and it does not mean the government can excessively tax us. Um, but taxing is good for a government to some extent because that's just what it has to have for it to run well. But if you excessively tax, it takes away um, work ethic and motivation and increases the burden to society. In conclusion, it is wrong for the government to redistribute wealth because it does not reduce poverty in the long term. It encourages people to spend money and buy things they can't afford and it's basically a government-approved way of stealing. As you can see, redistribution of wealth is not a wise scheme in the long term. It actually has the opposite effect because while narrowing the gap temporarily, it makes everyone poor by taking wealth away from the most productive and the most helpful to society. And not only does this discourage people, but it also prevents the creation of wealth and innovation that a strong nation and economy require. So I hope now that I hope now you understand the danger our world will face and is already facing because the government is redistributing. Imagine that the world you've known and loved has just escaped another world war and now has been surrounded by this wall and you're no longer allowed to leave your homeland. Well, this is what East Berlin was experiencing during the Cold War. During the Cold War, the Berlin Wall was a very influential part and today we'll be talking about the construction and before the Berlin Wall, during the construction of the Berlin Wall and the time it was up and the demolition and time after the Berlin Wall. The first part we're going to talk about is why the Berlin Wall was actually built. So after World War II, um, Berlin was split into East and West Berlin, um, but that was actually in a part of East Germany that was controlled by the Soviet Union after the Allied powers had won World War II. West Berlin was controlled by the rest of the Allied powers, including France, England, and the United States. Now, this is very interesting that the capital of Berlin was in East Germany and was still split between both the Soviet Union and the other Allied powers. During this, there was lots of tension due to the fact that the Soviet Union was a communist society 
while the other three allied powers were a capitalist democratic society. This caused constant struggle between both sides, and there was an equal divide between East Berlin and West Berlin. This was never changed until the actual Berlin Wall was built. The Berlin Wall was built in 1961 and was constructed of primarily concrete and barbed wire. Um, so during the time when this Berlin Wall was built, there was lots of struggles because many of these people who had known East and West Berlin to always be one whole capital were no longer allowed to leave their homeland and were actually kept in. Now this is kind of strange because most time walls are built like fences, they keep things out. Now this fence was built in the exact opposite. It was to hold their own people captive. This is an issue because these people had known a free society with West Berlin and now were held captive in a communist country that they may not have agreed with. Um, Winston Churchill referred to this as the Iron Curtain. Um, the Iron Curtain was something that he said was always around just it was physically formed in 1961 when this wall was built. This wall was 27 miles long. That's a long ways for someone to try and protect and guard. So the way that East Germany decided to do that was through large amounts of dogs who were chained to the wall, 55,000 landmines, and guarded posts every mile on the wall. Now, the demolition of this wall though it sounds like a lot, was actually quite simple. After 1989, when East Germany finally gave up their posts in um, Berlin, they allowed the citizens to actually demolish the wall. Uh, this was the symbolic way um, of the tarnishing of the Iron Curtain, and Winston Churchill later said that the Iron Curtain was the, um, was the reason that the Germany was split so much during the Cold War and even later on through many years past the Cold War. Um, it's said that the Iron Curtain was still around even up until 1992 when there was finally the divide was split and the Germany was regained as one country. I hope that I've helped you to learn a little bit more about the Berlin Wall and the differences between East Germany and West Germany and why the Berlin Wall was built, the time during the Berlin Wall, and the demolition of the Berlin Wall. Now, I just hope that we all can understand that just the magnitude that so many of these citizens went through when a random wall was built after many world wars and was, that you're finally entrapped in their own home. Thank you.
Do you need help back there, or are you getting it? Well, while they're getting that set up, I'll give you a... Hey. Uh, yeah, we should. What's different? the difference. A lot of people know about Winston Churchill, his bravery in the face of the Blitz, and his encouragement to England through all of World War II. But not a lot of people know about uh, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister that came before that came before Churchill. Today we're going to be looking at some similarities but mainly differences between Churchill and Chamberlain, beginning with beginning with their experiences, their religion, and their different attitudes of courage and compromise in the face of Hitler and World War II. In every story, whether it's fictional or non-fictional, the experiences that that character goes through is, uh, is big in shaping who they are and what the end result of their life is. So, beginning with the similarities. Churchill and Chamberlain were both born into uh, families with a long political line and were both sons of conservatives and they were also both prime ministers. This, however, was where their similarities stopped and their differences picked up. Winston Churchill was a young man with a lot of passion and didn't always know when to use that passion. He was rejected by many political parties for speaking out on hard topics such as the free trade and the Bengal famine where in the colony of India uh, people were being overworked and the, food, and the prices of food were high because of World War II. Neville Chamberlain was a, was a mild man who was used to being accepted, did not speak on what was unpopular, and, uh, and did not, and even though Churchill had passion and didn't know when to use it, Neville Chamberlain didn't have passion and just went with the flow. The two, uh, each man had a defining story in, uh, in their young career before they took on politics. Never, Neville Chamberlain uh, left his family uh, trade and went off to business on, on an island to start a farm of 20,000 acres. In the, during this venture, he failed, but was admired for his hard work. Churchill went off to the army, and as we mentioned before, was a passionate man who didn't always know how to hold his tongue. Because of this, he humiliated himself and brought on hatred not only from his peers, but from his family. The biggest difference in anybody whether they are a child or an adult, is their difference in religion. Churchill was born into a strong Christian family and was raised, and was raised, uh, excuse me. Churchill was, brought, uh, was born into a strong Christian family and is uh, quoted in saying at the beginning of his ministership, the flame of Christian ethics is still our highest sky. Chamberlain was born into an unfaithless family and only told the press he was Unitarian because it would please the people. 
A Unitarian is a person who, uh, excuse me, who tries, who makes, who wants to make unity with people and animals, and believes that God is the presence around them. One of the biggest uh, points of controversy between Chamberlain and Churchill was Chamberlain's agreement with Hitler called the Munich Pact of 1939. Churchill, now matured in his years and understanding of when to use his passion, called this an unmitigated, dis uh, called this an unmitigated disaster. Excuse me. Um, while uh, Chamberlain called it peace for our time. Churchill understood the meaning of the, uh, the psalm uh, when the psalmist said in Psalm 127.1, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, they that build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman, the watchman stays awake in vain. Uh, the watchman stays awake in vain. In Isaiah forty thirty one, it says, "But they who wait for the Lord shall mount up, on, uh, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint." Churchill took this verse with him as he took on. A discouraged people, a, uh, a failed prime minister before him, and World War II. Faith, the faith and experiences of both men eventually caught up to them during their prime ministership. Churchill is quoted as saying to Neville Chamberlain at his resignation, You were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor, and you will, and you will have war. Churchill... Uh, it was unpopular for many people to think that England could stand against Germany or that England should stand against Germany. Churchill disagreed, and using the, his practice, passion, his faith, and his strong voice, he, led, uh, he eventually led England through the Blitz. At his resignation, in fear of what the people would think and in fear of facing Hitler, even though it was part of Chamberlain's fault that Hitler came after England, Chamberlain said, everything I worked for has crushed into ruins. Uh, because of his, because of because Chamberlain was flattered and he was used to going with the flow, he uh, was not able to encourage or even speak well of uh, what Churchill did through World War II or the Blitz. So Chamberlain and Churchill, we looked at the differences in their we looked at the differences in their experiences their difference in their religion, and the difference in their attitudes of courage versus compromise when it came to Hitler and the Blitz. These are two great men with two great lives, and have, they both have two great stories. So what is the difference? They left two different legacies. Thank you.
Alright, well we only have 15 minutes, but uh, I think we could get a good progress on the game. Let's go ahead and uh, get started. Do we have some teams lined up? Okay, so I think we have, so we have 15, so we can, I, we can do three teams of five, five teams of three. Well, we'd have to do three teams of five, so we have four of us. So we're going to yeah. do three teams of five. And um, um, I can just, I'll, I'll call out and give you a number, okay? So we'll just do this kind of random. Well, let's let's do four teams. We got enough. Uh, that way, that way, we'll get more involvement from the kids. Okay. Um, and we'll just have one team with one less person. Okay. Yeah. So we got four boys and four boys. We got four girls and four girls. Yeah. Uh, so we go ahead and uh, you know, you guys, you four together. You four. You four. You four. Alright, so do you want to just have each team send up a representative for each uh, question? Or? Yeah, Sam, how yeah. Do you want to do it? Yeah. Sam, he's on the air rest right now. You are going to represent the House. You want to be the representative? You represent the Senate. You want all four of you up here. Well, okay, so. Like if they give an answer and it's wrong, don't click on it so we don't see the answer. And then um, we could then give maybe the other three a chance to buzz in for half the points or something like that, if they can get it. What do you think? So if well, that's normally in Jeopardy, the first person to buzz in, you know, if they get it wrong, then the next person can buzz in and uh, get it right. For, for the points. same amount of for points? For full points, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I think that's how it works. Yep. Is that a what? Review on how to do It is from your first vocab, your, your uh, terms and definitions, and the first four study guides. Well, I'll play the host. Okay. Yeah. So. Alex Trebek. Yes. He's still alive. He's still going. Uh, welcome to Jeopardy here in our apologetics class. This has been put together by. Lori, and she's done a great job finding the PowerPoint that's going to work. You will take a look here at our board. You'll see the subjects that we have for the competition today. First category is isms. That's from your terms and definition sheets. The second category, terms and definitions, are some of the terms and definitions that are not isms. So that's going to be something that you're going to want to maybe have in front of you when you're not up here at the buzzer. And then the third category is the first chapter of the apologetics book, and then that will follow across the last four categories, from the Roman Age, to the Middle Ages, to the Renaissance, to the Reformation, covering all the history that is there. And so, when you come up here to the board, we'll just start with one of the categories, we'll start with isms for 200, and so well, let's have one... Do they get to pick? After they answer a question oh, correctly. Uh, so let's have one representative from each team up here on the stage, please. If you have a team name, let me know. All I have is guys, guys, gals, gals. Anybody have a team name? We are the second. The what? We are the second. The second. I am the second. Okay. Okay, guys, send a representative. We don't have much time. Yep, let's get going. Next time. Let's just go. All right. So, 
Uh, for isms, category two, look at the board. Uh, $200, category one. The belief that there is a God and that he is knowable and involved in the world. Green. What's that? Deism. Deism. What's the, uh, what is... No. That, that is not correct. You don't discuss. Uh, you got you to do it yourself. No. Go for it. Any other? Red team. Yes, that is correct. $200 for red team. Uh, answer is, uh, the, the question is, what is theism? All right, uh, now back to the board. And red team, you get to choose what uh, question and category. Choose a category and a dollar amount. Go ahead. Pick a category. All right, and do you want how much? Yeah, uh, we'll show once you pick the number dollar number, we'll show the question. We'll show the answer for everyone, and then whoever buzzes in with the question first. Four hundred. All right. So the Reformation for four hundred. The answer is the Reformation rejected errant teaching regarding the blank of the church, salvation by works, and pagan ideas being mixed with scripture. Green team. Papacy? Close. Uh, do we want to accept that answer? I don't think anybody else would do it. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, no. What is the answer? Uh, what is the question? What is the authority of the church? The authority of the church. Alright, let's get a new representative from each team up here. Thank you, guys. For 400, the study of right and wrong, good and bad, moral judgment. Red team, uh, you have to say, what is ethics? Can you say that? That's correct. All right, so that's $400 for red team. Back to the board, please. Stay up here. Uh, what category in question next, red team? Say what? Terms and definitions for 600. A system of logic, inference, and conclusion drawn from examination of the facts, reasoning from the general to the specific. Blue team. Deductive reasoning from the general to the specific. What is deductive reasoning? The answer is correct. What is deduction? So that's $600 for blue team. And back to the board. What would you like next, Blue Team? The Renaissance for 200. This era is characterized by the belief that man is his own measure, that man is blank. 
don't lose any money for guessing. Yes? What is it? No, that's close. Man is... No, uh, just one word is what we're looking for, but you are on the right track. Anyone else want to buzz in? All right, so let's show the answer. Man is autonomous. Yes. Some people in the crowd knew that one. All right, let's bring another group up. was the last to answer a question correctly, so you get to choose the question. Terms and definitions, 800. Terms and definitions for 800. A branch of philosophy where truth is determined by reason. Yellow team. What is epistemology? No. Anyone else? <laughs> The answer is, what is rationalism? Rationalism. All right, back to the board. Blue team, please thought. Isms for 400. Isms for 400. The belief that there is a God, but that God is not involved in the world. Green team. That is correct. I was about to buzz for the timer, but you got it. That was 400 for green. 400 for green. All right, let's take one more here. Let's let green pick a category. The Middle Ages, 400. The Middle Ages for 400. The answer is blank art depicted people not as real people, but as symbols, which mirrored a societal drift away from God and the world that he had made. Red. Uh, That's not correct. Anyone else? The answer is, what is Byzantine art? All right, well, let's get a new group up here. All right, so green team, please select the category. The Reformation for 200. The answer is, Wycliffe and Huss preceded this reformer who nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. <laughs> green team. The answer is, uh, the question is, who is Martin Luther? Uh, you guys can buzz in whenever you want. Right, you don't have to wait for me to finish. Uh, Alright, green team. Um, the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages for 200. And the answer is, the early Middle Ages were characterized by true biblical Christianity <laughs> under leaders such as Blank of Milan and Augustine. Who was the church leader from Milan? All right, the answer is, or the question is, who was Ambrose? Who was Ambrose of Milan? All right, green team, select again. Oh, did they? 
The Renaissance for 400. And the answer is, this author wrote the Divine Comedy, mixing Christian ideas with those of the classical pagan world. Green Jean. The answer is, who is Dante? That's correct. $400 for the green team. The green team can select again from the board. The Middle Ages? The Roman Age for 200 Yes, The Roman culture, like the Roman humpbacked bridge, can only stand if not subjected to overwhelming what? <laughs> Green team. What is pressure? Yes, the, the question is what are pressure? <laughs> Alright, she's on a roll. We'll let her go again. She's so good. The Middle Ages? The Roman Age for 400. The answer is one problem with Rome is that it had no blank reference point as a base for its values and society. Red team. What is ethical? Uh, no. What is biblical? No. Anyone else? Those are all very close. They They're are. Like totally around the word that Schaefer used. Yellow team. What is moral? No. What is the question? The question is, what is infinite? No infinite reference. All right, uh, has everybody gotten a chance to be up here? All right, well, that's our time for today. Uh, what is our score at? Our score is yellow. No, oh, I Okay. Uh, the blue and red team are tied at 600, and the green is at 1,200. Okay, let's keep that score, and we'll see if we can continue here next time. No, we get, we